Hello, I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. Oh, do you want me to say something? Yes. <laughs> Hiya. And I'm Peggy Hughes. You're listening to episode 87 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. We're recording this on the 8th of April 2020 here in Norwich. Coming up on the show today, we have Vahur Afanishev talking to Lewis Buxton, and we, as you heard, are also joined by Peggy Hughes. <laughs> nice. So, Peggy, you have been writing some articles on the website for your bibliotherapy series. Guilty as charged, Simon. I have been. Tell us a little bit about uh, what, what this is all about. What's going on? Okay, so these are pretty funny times we're living in. I think we can all, wherever we are in the world, we can all acknowledge... We can agree on that. that, that yeah. we've, we can agree. We've never seen the likes of this before. So, um, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard being at home and not able to see the people you love and care about and your colleagues and who you love and care about as well. Uh, so I guess we, we thought it might be a nice way of... Um, being able to recommend a book at this particular time. You know, we're biased, I grant, um, but I think that um, lots of us can also agree that a book is a really lovely comfort or a provocation or a bit of time travel or a form of magic anytime really, but especially when things are hard. So we've been, yeah, I say we, uh, the team and I have been working to recommend some books for people, but very specifically based on um, what kind of books people feel like they want to be reading right now. So it's not just me, you know, saying here's a book I read. It's kind of responding to what people um, feel they would like to be engaging with at the moment. So we've had some lovely requests in from people. Last week, we had someone who wanted, um, was missing their friends and wanted a book that was about relationships and friendships. Um, we've had someone who wants to travel. Um, and obviously, at the moment, that's that's off the, off the off the table. So we're able to recommend some some nice books that help you travel uh, from the comfort of your armchair. I think travel in particular is something that books are so good at doing. And when we're all stuck in houses and in a small number of rooms it's nice to be able to for you know half an hour or an hour to disappear into a completely different space it, it is one of the best things really and I think some some books you know George R. R. Martin I think said you know you you in terms of traveling a distance but in terms of traveling you know in someone else's life or with someone else's shoes it's just a great way to be outside of yourself whether that's sort of to, to feel elsewhere geographically or to just have your mind get to get to travel somewhere else or, or be someone else so in all senses they are I think just not my quote but um I think it was Stephen King who said they're like a, a books are a portable magic really you know when you when you start, sort of get to thinking about what they are and the, the what they bring I mean they're pretty perfect as a as a technological device if you ask me <laughs> <laughs> so uh of, of the latest uh selection of books that went up on the second um we've got a couple that you'd pick out in particular to point people towards i definitely have you know because i'm just working on the ones for this week at the moment for the the newsletter that'll go out this week but for, from last week let's just see what we had um so i think people are able to get in touch with us via or twitter account or or via instagram or facebook or whatever so all at writer center um and they can just say here's what i am seeking at the moment and I will do my very best with the team to recommend some things. So this person, Sue, from last week, um, said that she was a big historical fiction fan. Uh, anything new I should put in my reading list. And I recommended the new Maggie O'Farrell 
Um, so for I'm sure there are plenty of Maggie O'Farrell fans out there. In fact, I know there are, but um, you know, I don't need to, to tell you that a, a new Maggie O'Farrell is, is big news indeed. And um, this one is a return. She has written one historical fiction novel before, but this is a return to that kind of um, arena, really. And it's uh, it visits uh, Shakespeare's time and specifically um, the the sort of inspiration or the period in which Shakespeare was writing Hamlet. Um, which was it's said or supposed that he was writing it in reaction to the death of his 11-year-old son, who was called Hamnet. Uh, and the book's wonderful. I mean, it's 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 signature O'Farrell, really. It's 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 sort of psychologically interesting. It's it's beautifully researched and written, um, and it's about a lot of what a lot of us are going through now about about grief and loss and difficult times and how how we and how writers are are handling that. We had an ask for some short stories, please, and that was it. So that's quite a quite a lovely broad church, um, and in this I got to thinking about uh, Janice Galloway who is um, a hero obviously um, and especially of mine but she said that um, a, a short story collection is like a bottle of malt whiskey and that you shouldn't read it all at once so you'll do yourself a mischief um, and so uh, yeah it's funny some I remember speaking to someone who, who did read short stories maybe that's 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 the way it works for some people but I couldn't sit down and read a whole big collection of short stories back to back um, but anyway, that got me thinking about the, the stories that are in my, my kind of bookshelves that really pack a punch. And so for that, I recommended some Kevin Barry, who I've loved for a long time. And, you know, he's sort of a master of these small towns where nothing really changes, but everything changes as well, like big sort of tough men with sad hearts and so on. Um, but they're just so, so beautifully drawn. And Jan Carson, who um, has a collection called Postcard Stories, in which um, they're just postcard on that she wrote them originally on the back of postcards. So they're really, really very, very short, very little. Uh, but my goodness, they contain a lot of multitudes of those stories. So, so yeah, I think I've, I've been hearing from people who are finding um, this a difficult time to read. Actually, you know that their attention span is it's distracting and you know constant news cycles and being worried and it feels like a really good moment for for people to return to um to, to short stories and indeed to poetry yeah i think everyone's having to kind of recalibrate their attention tell me um all the, all the ways you normally focus on stuff don't really work in the same way yeah. how, how are you what, what are you guys reading i'm interested to know are you finding it a distracting time to read um i I've actually, I managed to get through two books uh, at the weekend when it was sunny. So I was sitting in the garden enjoying myself. Um, so I read uh, Liminal by B. Lewis, which is uh, a book that was published by Salt Publishing, who are a local uh, publisher, um, which I really enjoyed. And I also read Kirsty Logan's short story collection, Things We Say in the Dark, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, and I've just started Olivia Lang's The Lonely City, which seemed, which I keep meaning to get around to read, and I haven't, and now seemed like a really, really good time, sort of meditation on loneliness and, you know, being alone, um, whether that's in a city or outside and sort of loneliness in art. So, um, yeah, I've actually found more time to read. Now my pace is slightly, I've slightly got used to the slower pace of life at the moment now. Finally, it's kind of clicked in the last few days. So I've enjoyed sitting in the garden wherever I can, having a read and getting sunburned, nice. unfortunately. Nice. 
Oh, sun cream. I, do you know, I, uh, Olivia Lang's The Lonely City, that is a, a real favourite book of mine. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really amazing so far. Stunning. It's just she, she, she constantly takes you by surprise, Olivia yeah. Lang. You know, you think yeah. she's talking about one thing, but actually she's talking about a whole catalogue of other mm. interesting things that she finds a way of joining up and connecting. And I, don't know, I totally, totally love that book. What about you, Simon? What are you reading? Well, I've kind of uh, gravitated back towards something I read about 15 years ago, which is a series of graphic novels uh, called Gotham Central, which is kind of like the Wire TV show, but set in Gotham. And Batman is this kind of background character that is barely in it. And it's actually about the police trying to do their jobs in uh, the slightly crazy DC universe uh, written by Ed Brubaker and Greg Rooker. And it's very, very good. But I think for me, it's one of those things where when times are a bit weird, I tend to go back to things that I'm familiar with and reread or rewatch them because it feels like, I don't know, maybe it reminds me of a time when things were less odd. Yeah, it's well, that, that, that is a lovely concept, actually. I think, I think you're, you won't be alone in that. I mean, I think that books, it seems to me they're, they're, they're just really different no matter where you, when you read them because you're mm. different. Um, which is a concept that kind of blows my mind. I love it. There's a brilliant book about this, actually, um, about Middlemarch. It's called The Road to Middlemarch, and it's by someone called Rebecca Mead. Um, and basically, it's just that. It's about it's about the, the, the process and the desire to reread and what mm. you bring to a book from a different viewpoint or angle in your own life. Really, really good stuff. Now, I remember reading The Lions of Alva Sand by Guy Gavriel Kay when I was in southern Spain mm. uh, on holiday. And the just the, the physical being in the space that, kind of inspired the book made the reading of that book completely different to if i'd read it in norwich yeah (laughs) yeah lush love that i love it you know i love it when i'm reading is when the when the date or the place aligns with the date or the place in the book i still remember the first time so strange oh my goodness oh it's so lush though i was on a school trip to york when I was eight and I was reading uh Secret Seven book by Enid Blyton and in it was the 8th of May and it was the 8th of May in the book and oh, I was so excited spooky. that we were on the same date yeah, yeah it was very cool yeah the oddest example of that I've had uh, it wasn't a date but it was a place it was I was reading Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy which is this epic saga over three books showing the colonization of Mars and there's a scene in the second book where one of the characters comes back to earth and for reasons I forget, he goes to a small town in Kent called Faversham, which is where I grew up. Ah. And it was the most <laughs> peculiar thing to encounter in the middle of this space opera thing. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a special, there should be There should be a word for that. I've not found it yet. You can invent it. Yeah, you, you could invent it, Steph. Why don't you invent it? I'll have a think. Yeah, next week we'll, we'll come back with the word. Or listeners, your, your listen, or listeners could uh, have a go at inventing it. Invent us a word, word for, for that, it, please. Strange resonance. So, uh, moving on to our interview with Vahur, um, he was our writer in residence um, a couple of months back, maybe a month back. I, I've lost all sense of time, yeah, me so I don't too. really know what's going on. Um, he was only here for two weeks because his trip got cut short due to coronavirus. He had to head back home. Uh, he was meant to be here for a month, mm-hmm. I think. Um, so, hopefully, he can come back another time to have a bit more of a look around the area. Yeah. And a bit like when we had. Jenny Offal on the podcast a few weeks ago. That was kind of an alternative to the events that was supposed to happen in person in Norwich. Um, Lewis Buxton was going to be talking with her and that couldn't happen. But what we've done is we've gotten together on the podcast to have the chat that couldn't happen and uh, it now exists in this digital form. So uh, let's hand over to Lewis chatting with her. 
Hello and welcome to the Writing Life podcast. My name is Lewis Buxton. Uh, I am your host for the next 40, 50 minutes to an hour. Uh, and I'm really pleased to welcome uh, Vaher Afanashev to the podcast. Uh, Vaher is a writer, a musician, and was part of the National Centre for Writing's residency exchange uh, with the Tartu UNESCO City of Literature. Vahar is a author and award-winning uh, writer of Serafima and Bogdan, which is a bloody and funny and surreal family saga about the Russian old believer minority in Estonia. Uh, in Norwich, uh, Vahar was working on his novel On the Brink of Bloom, which is set in the near future and deals with social anxieties around progress. Uh, unfortunately, that was cut short by the current COVID-19 situation. Uh, however, through the genius of technology, Bahar and I are talking um, and we're going to have a little chat about writing, about reading uh, and about all the other uh, wonderful parts of a writer's life. Uh, so first off, Bahar, how are you? How has your experience been over the last couple of months? Yeah, hi there. Uh, <laughs> it's been... Uh interesting and uh, actually wonderful time so far um, because uh, the corona crisis um, it's it's horrible but it also gets uh, gets the mind mind going so it's uh, not easy to live in interesting times but um, but then again they are interesting i've been thinking a lot about that this is a really difficult time. And I don't think as writers, um, it's necessarily easier for us in any ways. But I do think that like the nature of our work leaves us in a peculiar way, sort of equipped for isolation, for working alone, just working from home, perhaps. Um, have you Have you found that? Is that chiming with you at all? Uh, actually, I'm, I'm working, uh, working all the time. <laughs> Even when I mm. when I was keeping uh, daily daily jobs, it was it was anyway coming back home and uh, and continuing to work. And as I'm also a small time uh, entrepreneur in uh, uh, cur- currently uh, mostly in the field of publishing, but uh, but, but still, uh, if you are entrepreneurial then there is, there is no freedom uh, anyway but uh, isolation thing yeah this is uh, this is something i i really need for working there are people who, who can write in busy cafes but uh, unfortunately i'm i'm not the type anyway okay so what does i'm always interested uh, by different I mean, people's habits and jobs and how people go about organizing themselves, but like specifically writers. So how do you go about organizing your day? Um, you say that like you, you're sort of always working, but do you have a process? Do you have a routine that you fall into? I should have. I, I, I want to have a routine, <laughs> but um, uh, one, one thing I, I am trying to do is uh, to write uh, at least something uh, every day. At least a few lines, or, or if I'm working on a on a novel, then um, it's very bad to to stop uh, stop writing for for a while. 
one 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 mistake that I did when I started writing. <laughs> I was a teenager then. Okay, then I wrote uh, poetry, and with poetry, one can um, can really uh, wait wait for the um, for the spark. But uh, with with prose, uh, with my first books, I I I also was waiting for the spark, but. Uh, Actually, one one has to find a way to enforce the creativity, which basically means just have to sit down in front of your computer and and get the get the thing uh, flowing. Uh, just uh, find the ways to to start the creativity, not not uh, not just wait for it. Yeah, I no, I can. I completely again like my uh, main pra- practice is that I'm a poet, uh, and so I really hear that thing about like with poems you can you can wait for them because they're small. It, it's sort of like like a poem is a letter that um, can get posted through your letterbox any time of day, whereas a novel is like a big parcel that you have to wait in for and make sure that it you are there when it arrives. Um, so that's that's really interesting. Do you have? Um, in terms of that that thing about like sitting down at the computer, do you have certain things around you that you need? Do you need a desk? Do you sit like at your sofa typing on your laptop? What what are the what is the ideal setting for you? Uh, I'm pretty picky. I, I need uh, proper <laughs> proper desk, and uh, actually, I, I also use a desktop computer mostly, not not a laptop. Uh, with, with sep- separate keyboard and stuff like that. And one thing uh, that I need, a startup and uh, and keep going, of course, I have my smartphone with me all the time. Before that, uh, before the smartphone, uh, <laughs> I, I also wrote down um, wrote down small small pieces or sentences or, or just. Uh, Ideas or li- lines of lines of poetry, and, and now I have this um, uh, these resources in Google Keep, and uh, I, I uh, copy paste them into a Google Drive um, file. I have a separate file for for prose things, more more prose things, and uh, and and poetry. Uh, when I start working, I nor- normally open both documents and uh, just can can, can take uh, pieces pieces from from there. Actually, writing the writing a poetry as, as well. I, I I've started to combine these uh, these pieces and uh, ideas. It's like you're to coin a common phrase at the moment. Uh, it's like you're stockpiling all these like bits of words. It's like you're taking them all and putting them, putting them to one side for when for when you need them. I think I think that's quite a common thing that writers do. And again, it's that thing about those little fragments are the sparks. They're they're the bits of inspiration. Um, and then we've got like our job as writers is to is to take them and try and try and put them together in some sort of sensical way. Uh, so that's. That's a really interesting process that you get. I love that you um you work at a desktop computer as well. That like it's there are very specific things that you need. 
So what was your experience like coming and being in residence at the National Centre for Writing in Norwich, which is at the beautiful Dragon Hall where we, we were supposed to be doing this interview? Uh, but there you get a beautiful little cottage, which has got its own like study area and kitchen and everything. So did you find a new way of writing, a new routine, a, a new sort of set of things that you found inspirational? So I, I basically set, set up my um, normal environment, but that's that's a the cottage is just just perfect. It's uh, quiet enough and cozy, cozy mm. and roomy, and um, yeah, it's a su- super place to place to write. A couple of years ago, I managed to buy a, a country house or. Uh, I have worked uh, work, work from the country country house, uh, but before that, when I didn't didn't have it, uh, I was in real desperate need for, <laughs> for for a place like like the Dragon Hall Cottage, for example. But it was only my my second second residency uh, this time. I did did one five uh, five years ago in in Italy in Manzana. Beautiful. So very. Very efficient, uh, efficient time of writing. Mm. So, how long were you in Norwich for? Two weeks. Very similar to to my hometown Tartu, actually. Oh, really? Just a river and uh, hilly, hilly landscape and uh, university. I feel like I should say for uh, any East Anglian listeners uh, that Norfolk generally not very hilly. Nor- Norwich specifically, we do have a couple of pretty steep hills knocking about. Um, but I'm really glad that I really glad that you you liked it. I feel very connected to to Norwich, and I find it's a really like useful place for me to be creatively as well. I really wanted to uh, to see to see the broads as well uh, and and the uh, nature as well. I, I missed I missed that, so I, I have to go come back. Come back. I'll take you to the beach. It'll be great. Like the broads, we'll go up to the coast, get your fish and chips at Wells. It'll be lovely. But yeah, shall we move on to uh, talking about some of your work more specifically? So um, the book that you sort of like had just finished, I think you just finished it before you came to Norwich and it was out, uh, is Seraphima and Bogdan, uh, which is your epic novel. Uh, it's this sort of, uh, I think you, you could describe it as a sort of like uh, post-World War II saga that follows lots of different storylines and it pulls on, It seems to me it seems to pull on everything from sort of like um, mythic sagas to uh, the sort of like historical fiction that we see so much at the moment with all sorts of different influences in it. Um it's a it's a big old book, and it's it's sort of split into well f- four five sections really, but with the three three sections: the book of weddings, the book of survival, and the book of growing up. Um, can you tell me a little bit, especially as somebody who like I'm a poet, I work in quite small chunks. How do you think about this vast thing like a novel, and how do you think about cutting it up into sections into these books? Uh, why did you choose to cut it up as you did, and and how do you go about that process in the first place? Mm, it all started from the from the thing that I spent my childhood uh, summers in old Oldley or village, 
and there were these uh, small stories, bits and pieces, uh, people. Of course, as a child, I didn't really, really think that I'm, I'm gathering material to build, build a novel. Of course, not. Uh, I, I only, I only started thinking, thinking about it um, much later, and uh, it took me uh, quite some time to figure out. Um, how to how to really make make a novel novel out of it uh, I, I was looking for one story that would uh, would keep the thing uh, going like a, like a safety rope uh, you can <laughs> you can use while climbing uh, so so I found this uh, uh, found this uh, uh, horrible uh, revenge uh, saga. It's uh, old Icelandic uh, saga, actually. So I just read. Uh, <laughs> it was only one paragraph uh, of the English text. Uh, text what what happens there. So it was really. Really strong, strong stuff, and uh, made, made me scared and think how how can it be that way? Uh, somebody somebody plots a revenge and uses the child children for for revenge, not not direct revenge. And then so so I took this uh, safety rope and starting building the building the novel around it and, and using the real real life and uh, real life stories and also of course th thinking thinking up uh, in inventing uh, so, so so much uh, more and blending it some sort of surreal, surreal way but the sections and uh, and parts uh, it, it came came in the process uh, just uh, started writing and I think when I was uh, near the end of the the first first part of first first book, uh, th then I already had the structure, but I was still working on it. I was also writing uh, writing writing parts um, parts of it and uh, moving moving them <laughs> between the between the books and uh, between the chapters as well so but the structure is just um, felt so, so, sort of logical the, in the process it uh, all, all 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 pieces uh, fall, fall into the right right places that sounds that sounds very neat almost sounds like it's you use this metaphor of like building uh there's a, a i don't know if the, the writer rebecca solnit this american writer and she says that uh, she's talking about poetry, but she says that a poem is as much a made thing as a chair, and sometimes more useful. And so I like that idea of like a novel, any piece of writing, as something that we build, something that is sort of piece by piece. You you use the sort of rope metaphor as like the one story that threads through that sort of I don't know the spine of the house, the spine of the building that that you're putting together. Um, and it, it, I find it really interesting that the, the structure just sort of fell into place for you. Um, in a more sort of like specific way, 
I'm a re- like some of the detail in this book is incredible. I really like this goes into some of your poems as well. You've got a real preoccupation with fish. And I think it's a really interesting thing to be interested by. Uh, there's a point, I think, uh, I think it's sort of early on in the novel, actually, where Theophan uh, is uh, going out with a fishing crew and they're fishing bream. And you give a really detailed description of how bream move and spawn. Uh, where'd you get that from? Like, why are you, what's your interest in fish? My my hometown Dartus is near the huge lake Lake Papus, uh, is between Estonia, Estonia and Russia, and my my country house is just uh, just on the on the shore with a lake um, lake view. It's uh, over thirty kilometers to to Russia from uh, from the place I'm I'm sitting at the moment. <laughs> so fish, uh, yeah, fish is essential part part of life. The, the, there is this idea that the Estonians are are still uh, still forest people, or, uh-huh. or like of course we are we we, we passed uh, past the sta- stage of uh, farming people, and, but but still there is so- something of the hunter gatherer thing thing in us maybe. That's really interesting though. Like you, that thing about like the world around you, your you know, you live in a fishing town, so fish become a become such a like preoccupation of the text. However, I wanted to talk now slightly about um, the narrative voice in in this whole novel is this like weirdly beautiful, like halting, um, omniscient narrator that sort of uh, interjects and like tells us these things about what the characters are feeling, but it. It it feels like both detached and also like like a very clear voice. Almost the 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 one way I was going to compare it to was um, the way Tennessee Williams writes his stage directions. There's, they're these beautiful poetic. In the case of of Williams, like they're sort of over the top because you don't need that many stage directions, but they work so beautifully in Seraphima and Bogdan. So like. Where does that voice come from? Is that the voice that you like to write in for novels all the time? Was it a new thing for this project? Tell me about that. Uh, I, I used to use um, more more modern kind of uh, voice, actually, before, before that. Uh, the novels were also shorter and uh, the sentences were, were short, uh, so sort sort of uh, fight fight club style thing. <laughs> yeah, it was very very popular popular in nineties and uh, begin, beginning of the century. So, mm. but uh, but actually this uh, poetical uh, narrative uh, uh, long long read style is also also very common in Russian literature. I remember when I when I started reading in in Russian uh, Victor Pelevin's uh, book uh, also pretty uh, his topics are pretty pretty modern and it's also um, surreal and, and crazy and, and political at places and what what not ever but I was I remember I was a bit shocked uh, 
by the style uh, he used for narrative. It wasn't uh, hacked up uh, one word sentences and stuff like that, but uh, <laughs> just no- normal uh, long descriptions and uh, easy going way to, to describe just to, to, to the point. Yeah, it feels, I think, a lot of this book, I was thinking it, it would work really work really well as an audio book. Like if because it feels like someone's having a conversation with you, and and I suppose that also sort of links back in with that thing about you said about Icelandic sagas and this form that was always supposed to be almost oral storytelling, right? And so you do you do feel like you're being told this family history, which I suppose maybe plays in with the thing I said about stage directions as well that there's there's something performative about this. Does that chime with you? Uh, yeah, it uh, it does actually. The thing is, uh, I am I am writing uh, I am writing films, <laughs> not not in the sense that I would have written uh, any any scripts for uh, script for for um, for a movie. But uh, the 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 novel when when I write it, I I see I see people um, the the characters uh, in action talking. Uh, in their environment, uh, I, I, I see, I see the, I see the thing. It's it's vi- visual, and when they, when they speak, I, I try to try to write it down the the way they, they would speak. Actually, uh, yeah. I wrote a novel in in Estonian uh, because my Russian is not so fluent, uh, but I uh, my, my my Russian is much much better. In, in understanding and uh, and talking, I, I couldn't have written it in, in Russian. But uh, when the characters uh, spoke in my mind, when I was imagining the situations, uh, they were speaking Russian. So I sort of uh, uh, sort of sort of tra- translated uh, and I also used uh, a bit Rus- Russianized uh, grammar in their uh, direct speech. That's so interesting, like the the inner world that you have, which really like it shows in the sort of the breadth of Seraphima and Bogdan and like the, the the inner lives of the characters, the fact that you, you I can really imagine that you know everything about them, even the stuff that you're not telling us in the text. There's all these all these th- things falling out um, that. That is incredible, and it is—it's almost like, like an actor preparing for a part, but you've got to prepare for a whole cast of characters. I think that's that's incredible, but but it makes me think about you as a multidisciplinary artist, like somebody who is writing novels, uh, writing poems, uh, making music, uh, and so like you've said to me in a previous email that you don't see poetry and prose as very different for you um but like that i'm 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 interested in like how that rich inner life of the characters you know you visualizing a novel cinematically how does that translate to writing a poem like are the processes different at all or or are you using the same set of skills uh yeah actually for for poem it's not a poem, poem is not so so visual for me. The, I, I think I 
in in poetry i focus more more on on myself really on on my my feeling feelings but uh, i i i have i have uh, ri- written this uh, visual uh, or film kind of uh, poetry as well imagining uh, other people in some 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 action or or drawn by some feelings so so th- there are similarities uh, of course for me it's always uh, kind of weird to see that uh, somebody is a writer and a poet i yeah i completely agree i get um i i mean i get annoyed when people uh just struggle for what to call me people always seem to want to avoid the word poet they want to say they want to say writer or they want to say author or um like because I work in performance quite a lot I get spoken word poet and I'm just like that doesn't like just call it just call me a poet that's much easier I think um but the one thing I noticed about uh, the poems of yours that I've read I think there is a real cinematic bent you have these incredible ways of describing things you've got the phrase in one of your poems uh it's through the bitter throat of the dandelion, which is, I just think it, it, the, the whole line is through the bitter throat of the dandelion to blow myself into the wind. That just like as an image is beautiful, but you've also got a real uh, interest in sound. Um, so you, there's a phrase you you've got a phrase, the hungry smack on water, the hungry smack on water, I think is incredible. And then you also say a thing in a poem uh, well, you say that any sound is better than silence. And so there's something about like uh, your poems being uh, being like things of immense sound quality, uh, things that really pay attention, not just to what things look like, but how things sound. I'm trying to like collapse them into into one practice rather than, as you like say, like, why why do we treat them as different? Yeah, well, if 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 I write, even if I write uh, about my own own feelings, uh, then then still uh, it's, it's it's all based on the world that I that I see yeah. or or experience, and uh, I I would hate to limit myself to to only 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 philosophical concepts without. Uh, Without some real, real life, uh, real life experiences, or yeah, the sounds uh, mm. and the uh, hungry, 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 hungry smack. It's, it's a re- real, real life thing. Fish, fish do this. No, I completely agree with you. I think that, like, especially when I'm when I'm like teaching, uh, like anyone to write a poem. Uh, I think the inclination of people is to go towards those big philosophical, abstract concepts. And what I think your work does so well is is root those things. Like you're quite interested, again, uh, this is me as a reader reading your stuff, like in, in the concept of like the self or the soul, you call it a couple of different things. But um, my favourite line was, uh, through the years I tried to provide you with the best pieces of myself, never asking if you prefer bread or fish scraps, poetry, or earrings, dinners, or a shoulder rub. And I think, like, that thing about, like, the best pieces of yourself, and then making those pieces concrete with, 
bread or fish or poetry or earrings or dinners or shoulder rubs. I think that's that's just like a beautifully executed line. Um, this is just turning into me fanboying over you. I hope that's all right. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, well, it these these artifacts of real real life like shoulder rub or or, or bread. Mm. Uh, uh, without these, I I wouldn't re- relate or the words to. Uh, the, the the idea itself would sound sound hollow or just just a mm. con- concept. Stuff stuff needs needs uh, illustration in 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 some some way at least for me. Of course, first of all, I write uh, write for myself and also on on, on based on my experience uh, of of reading. So writing has a, of course algorithmical. Uh, ways in it uh, as well but if the content is too purified or or, di- or distilled to just um, just con- concepts uh, sharp and cold descriptions of uh, feelings mm. or, or psychology then it doesn't, doesn't just it's just very it's, it's not easy to relate to it uh, then it, it needs to needs to have some 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 re- re- real life thing to it yeah, because like, you know, if you just say, I love my wife, that sort of doesn't mean anything because you don't know the writer's wife, you don't know what's interesting about her, uh, and you don't know the writer. But if you centre that love in uh, bread and uh, shoulder rubs, and again, we come back to fish, to fish scraps, like um, that that seems like a way of... Of, of presenting it to another person and being like, look, this is what my love looks like. What does yours look like? And it turns the poem into more of a conversation than just a declarative statement about love. And I think, I think you do that beautifully. So what role does poetry play for you in your working life? Is it a thing that you're constantly doing, writing poems alongside the novels? Is it a thing that like in Estonia is, uh, there's a big culture for like, how does how does poetry work for you day to day? With poetry, yeah, I, I feel uh, less 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 pressure actually to to do, to do it. So so I can I, I can can wait for this uh, spark to happen unless I have very concrete con- con- concept of a book. Uh, then it's also very easy to uh, I mean a poetry book. Then it's of course very very easy to pile up the con- content. With other other poems, but uh, generally I just uh, yeah write write sometimes as a, as the ideas come to me like all, all the time and then the notes notes that I take just some go into into prose and some go into poetry and some go actually actually to both uh, both places. If some mm. somebody w- would start uh, start dig- digging in, uh, then it's po- possible to fi- find uh, 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 ideas or or, or um, a- any kind of pieces that are used actually used actually in, in both uh, mm. both ways of uh, expression. Well, it comes back to that thing that you're saying about the notes on your phone that like they become this sort of again stockpile this place that you go back to and uh, and and you do find yourself being like oh this is a really good image and I used it in this poem six years ago so it's probably all right if I now use it in a 
um, in a novel. That, those tiny moments of sort of self-plagiarism, I think, uh, are really useful for us as writers. Like, I don't wait six years. <laughs> I can use them immediately. With, with... <laughs> yeah, this is, this, is, this is no problem. Well, yeah, because like we become preoccupied with things. I think that like this is a broad statement, but I think all writers are really just people who get obsessive about things. Like I get absolutely obsessed with particular parts of pop culture or, um, or, or yeah, like an idea. Like I get obsessed with the idea of like, um, I'm currently obsessed because it's spring uh, with describing trees uh, as looking like they've got pink cheeks. And I just keep using that idea over and over and over again. And and being like, yeah, you should probably stop this at some point because I don't even know if it's a good idea, but I'm just using it a lot. Explore it until it uh, interests you. Yeah, until it falls apart. So you mentioned there a little while back about uh, reading because you were talking about like reading Russian novels, and um, I'd be really interested. Like, what are you reading at the moment? Like, what is uh, what book is on your bedside table? What is keeping you going through all this? Uh, I, I t- tend, tend to use uh, to read uh, several books at a time. Mm. So now in uh, uh, in Schiphol Airport, I, I bought this uh, Yuval Harari, <laughs> uh, Homo Deus, uh, this uh, un- unescapable. Uh, uh, in, in intellectual circles. <laughs> Actually, my, my friend, a bio, biologist, uh, and a bit of environmentalist, uh, he introduced me to re- reading reading Harari. So mm. what can I do? I have to read it as well. But uh, yeah, it's n- nice and interesting. But I've been reading also a lot of Polish uh, literature, actually, uh, mm-hmm. for, the, for the past past year or so. There is one uh, one excellent translator in in Estonia who's doing a huge uh, job in in, in introducing uh, Polish uh, literature to Estonians. So I, I've been reading uh, reading through Mrozek and, and currently Czesław Milos. Uh, so oh yeah, I was talking about Milos the other day. I've actually got um, one of my favorite poets is a guy called Bogdan Piazetsky, who is a namesake of the titular character of your book, Serafima and Bogdan. But Bogdan's a Polish writer who now lives in England and does a lot of translation both ways. But he's incredible. He's a performer as well. And he'll do a poem, uh, you know, live and he'll read it in English and then read it in Polish or the other way around. And it's incredible the way like those things hit you in 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 different ways which sort of leads us slightly to talking about translation and your your experience of translation i i have to admit at this point i am a um monolinguist i speak english and no other language which is a constant source of embarrassment for me when i do stuff like this but what's your experience of translation i know that like seraphima and bogdan uh was translated by someone else. Do you translate any of your own stuff? What's it? Tia Falk um, translated Seraphima and Bogdan. But like, so what's your experience been of translation? How does it influence your work in any way? Uh, I did translate uh, some of my my poems for 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 the for the no, no, Norwich to to use in Norwich. The, actually, the the ones you 
refer to. I, I would prefer actually a, a professional translator do, doing this. But maybe for the, for the poetry, it's, it is may, maybe feasible to translate it uh, myself and uh, have it edited because a poem is so short and fragile. It strikes me that a poem as a task of translation is both an easier and much more difficult task. But I love your concept of like a poem being short and fragile. Does that mean that novels are long and robust? Uh, it doesn't mean that, but uh, it's just uh, if if you if you mess mess up a little little piece of the novel, there is still, still the per- percentage of of course a lousy translator can can mess it up mm. roughly, but. <laughs> For, for the for the pros, I I I, I wouldn't uh, wouldn't take the risk of translating uh, by, by by myself. Well, I think what we're learning is that we we and we both understand that translation in itself is a really important job, and it's a job that is both like like a a sibling to writing. It is a creative and important act, but. There, it seems what you're saying is there has to be some separation between the writer and the translation translator for you. Uh, actually, I, yeah, I think it's 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 needed. Just just like uh, there has to be an editor. I strongly believe in mm. uh, having an, an editor working working on the on the book. Though so, in Estonia, it's so easy to publish a book that people people actually do publish uh, poetry books without an editor sometimes. Yeah, I well, <laughs> I think we see a fair amount of that. I don't I don't know. So some sometimes sometimes yeah, sometimes it can 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 be good or or for 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 the better of course, but in in general, it's a difficult thing at the moment because um, I think sometimes editors are seen as gatekeepers or as sort of enforcers of like elitism in some way, um, and I think that that's, that can be the case that there are editors that only take work from a very specific demographic uh and that needs to be widened uh but at the same time if those editors if we have more diverse editors if we have um in my opinion like more independent presses that are doing interesting stuff uh then then that sort of solves that problem um but yeah sometimes i think people uh, with the ease of self-publishing and stuff like that throw stuff out into the world and haven't thought about it and haven't had it just considered as a, by another reader and, and thought about as like, you know, how are other people going to receive this? Maybe, maybe the, also the, my, my views on, on, on editing and publishing are a bit different as well because Estonia is such a small country and the publishing process is so democratic mm-hmm. <laughs> that you can, you can it's, it's so, so easy to get uh, published even uh, the, the last couple of books I've published myself and it's so, so, so easy to get them sold in the biggest yes. bookstores uh, as well so there is no yeah, this, you, you can just go like that. So that's so interesting. Uh, and also the, the the and also the editors. It's it's um, the normal process is that uh, you f- you yourself find an editor, pick an editor. The editor is not uh, Kerberos or, or mm. a gatekeeper. 
in the publishing house. Interesting. Who sort of uh, takes t- takes the takes the manuscripts and uh, and uh, forms them in uh, in si- similar similar mm. way, like to, to meet the uh, long established uh, idea that this sells and this does not sell. Just that's <laughs> fascinating. So so it's, it's it's a bit different. No, that's really interesting because that is, I think, definitely in uh, in the UK, there is still the sense of the big publishing houses and the literary agents and then the editors and the, the process that a book goes through that is still sort of a bit veiled and a bit transparent. So it sounds like in Estonia, there's a much more, like you say, democratic, but also transparent way of, of books coming into the world. Uh, Diverse. So, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd hope so. Um, so I am conscious of time. And so I just wanted to see if we could bring this to a conclusion by opening outward to, uh, the rest of the world right now to address the fact that there are people listening to us. Um, and I was wondering what advice you have, uh, for writers who are working in these sort of like several different disciplines in poetry and and novel writing or just writers generally like what what is your um advice for the writing life for getting on with it and um and making good work there are two most important things uh, for a writer uh, one thing is to read to read a lot and read uh, diverse stuff even try try to read uh, the stuff that at first doesn't seem so interesting, but just read a lot and uh, see what uh, other people do. Because uh, I, I often see that when people start uh, writing, they they are so they are maybe they have maybe seen seen some fi- films or, or something like that, and they they start ra- writing a book and are overwhelmed uh, of this good feeling of. Uh, uh, doing doing the same thing, but it's it's been done already and done in so, so many different ways. So uh, reading is important. And the sec- second uh, second advice is uh, to write <laughs> to write uh, write a lot. It uh, it gets uh, it gets better in the process. Like uh, playing piano. You you wouldn't really expect that uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you can go 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 to go to big stages uh, just after after a few months of uh, playing a piano or, or learning the first <laughs> first songs. So, so just you, you have to do do this, and if it gets boring and doesn't feel like that, and if you if you lack lack the drive, then you actually don't have to do it. <laughs> Because it, uh, <laughs> you like, don't have to do it. <laughs> brilliant, yeah. Uh, writing is not—it's not always enjoyable as well. Like mm. <laughs> writing a, a novel, it's, it's, it bother, bothers me all, all the time. It's, mm. a, it's, a, it's a burden, <laughs> a, jo- a job that um, waits, waits to be done. And, mm. It's even more horrible if there are no no deadlines to it. Yeah, that <laughs> so, sense of the so, infinite. So 
definitely easier to get a, a daily a daily job and uh, and fulfill somebody's assignments. <laughs> it sounds horrible, but but it's much more harder if you are your own master mm. and uh, <laughs> and you want to express stuff. But at least I feel that uh, I'm still lacking the tools of expressing mm. what I, what <laughs> what I feel or what I what I have have in me. Mm. So, it gets better, but sometimes it gets worse. I don't know if the new uh, no- novel I, I finished in Norwich on the brink of bloom. I have no idea how it will, <laughs> how it will be, what the reception will, will, will be, how people take it, if they like it or not. And I, I, I try, try to avoid actually thinking uh, about what, what other people think. Mm. Well, those are so maybe this is this is one 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 more piece of advice to just first of, first of all think, think about yourself and write write for yourself. You can't. It's, it's not easy to pre- predict mm. at all. That's also the problem problem with publishing houses and editors. I think in Western countries. Uh, the system is so fixed, and they are—they—they they want to see the result, and they—they they are so pressed to um, to get uh, to get the results. Uh, Estonia is small, and there there ain't much much money in uh, <laughs> in publi- publishing business anyway. So. <laughs> There is less reason to fret about it, so you can yeah. <laughs> you can just experiment, and sometimes it works. Seraphim and Bogdan worked amazingly. <laughs> I think those are three incredible pieces of advice. So to write for yourself, and who cares what other people think in the first instance? But then those other two pieces of advice to read and to write. I think for a podcast called The Writing Life, uh, there is no better advice. Like. If you want, if you want to be a writer, read. Uh, if you want, there's a wonderful English writer called Kate Clanchy, uh, and she says that she teaches uh, writing, and she says we are learning to write through reading and learning to read through writing, and it is a cyclical process. One thing will always support the other. That's nice. That's nice. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention? Anything that you've got coming up that might be of interest to listeners? Uh, before we say goodbye, uh, my own interest is to uh, find the publisher for Serafima and Bogdan, uh, an English uh, English uh, publisher, because it's translated beautifully. So, so if there are any uh, publishers in the UK who are listening to this at the moment and are interested in a beautiful, uh, romantic, tragic, strange, surreal at points upsetting saga Serafima and Bogdan, then do get in touch. Uh, Vahir Afanashev, thank you so much for being here uh, with me. This has been a lovely uh, way to spend my afternoon. So thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening and thanks to Vahir and Lewis and of course Peggy for joining us. If you have questions or want to get in touch with us or in fact if you want to ask for some book recommendations from Peggy you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writer Centre, check out our Facebook page or find us over at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk where you can also sign up to our newsletter.
please do review, subscribe and rate the podcast because it helps other writers to find it. Thanks again. Keep writing and we will catch you on the next episode. Thank you.